compulsory cut cut just fast for past. Miss Mongol gets George Bay. I mean, call it you, Gary Wolf. <laughs> and good morning, Gary. Uh, thank you. And good evening, Jonathan. I am in Madison, Wisconsin this evening. And uh, I, we, we're doing a kind of interesting. Which is in America. Uh, yeah, we're doing an interesting sort of uh, 20th anniversary of the Tiptree Awards Wiscon podcast already in the room with me. I have, um, oh, I forget your name. Ellen, <laughs> Ellen Clagis. Uh, say hello, Ellen. Hi, I'm Ellen Clagis. And this is Eileen Gunn. Hi, I'm also Eileen Gunn. And that makes two people who actually know their names. <laughs> and it's possible that sometime within Ellen the next... Ellen is in France. Uh, they're going to be making jokes about Ellen's and Eileen's for the rest of the evening. At some point, we may expect another guest to join us as well. But why don't we get started? Okay. Well, first of all, I've got to say, I've never made it to 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 uh, Wiscon, but I've made it to Madison once. It's a great location you're in. What's, what, what's the big deal about Wiscon? Why are you there? The big deal about WISCON is that it is the world's only feminist science fiction convention, and it is in its 35th year, which means it predates many, many, many people who are listening to this podcast. And I've been for quite a while, too, right? Yeah, I've been here. I've been coming for more than 15 years, maybe wow. 20 years. Yeah. And, of course, this is where you were saying uh, just before we started, this is where they're going to present uh, or where the, the Tip Tree Award has its has its roots. I have a friend, Tansy Rayner Roberts, who's one of the judges, uh, th- you know, this year for the, the the awards, and loves it to death. And I think she's ready to have a party just because of that. So, what's happening with it? With that, is that is it the twentieth anniversary? Did you say? Yeah, let me tell you a little bit about the Ooh. history of the Tiptree Award. Twenty years ago, or possibly twenty-one years ago, Pat Murphy was the guest of honor at Wiscon. and as her guest of honor speech, she did something that she and Karen Fowler thought was a little bit of a joke, um, which they decided that what the world mm. needed was a science fiction award that was named after a woman, because all the other major science fiction awards were named after men. Hugo Gernsbach, John W. Campbell, sure. Nebula K. somebody. Charles and, Nebula, yes. Uh, Charles Nebula. Nebula. And, and, yeah, and so Pat decided that there should be a science fiction award named after a woman, and she proposed that this award be the James Tiptree Jr. Award. That's a there was a pause, there was a lot of laughter, and everybody realized that this was, in fact, Alice Sheldon who wrote under the name uh, James Tiptree Jr. And then at WISCON, a great cry rose up and everybody said this is wonderful we will do this we will fund this with bake sales and <laughs> and quilts and other womanly arts and and everybody kind of went home after that and then it happened and there were bake sales and there was money and the next year they presented pat with a check for a thousand dollars for the james tiptree award wow and that was where it started and for the last 20 years we've had a jury of five people every year um, in that 20 years, we have, I believe, 97 different jurors. Wow. Um, and the award is given to the work of science fiction or fantasy that best expands or explores gender roles in any given year. Which might explain a misapprehension that people have they have that this is simply a feminist science fiction award for women or feminist writers. Yeah, it is not a feminist science fiction award. It is an award about gender. Um mm-hmm based on the work of James Tiptree, who was as confounding about gender as anybody we know. And 
that is that's one sentence is the only criterion for the award. So every year there is a different jury of five people who are given the sentence, the work of science fiction or fantasy that best explores or expands gender roles, go. Wow. That's what they get. And every year it is something different. And obviously 20 years ago, what we meant by exploring gender roles is very different what we mean from what we mean now, um, which is the lovely thing about the award is because it's only a one-sentence criterion. Mm-hmm. Jury gets to decide what is applicable in their particular year. Sure. Now, it also means that every year there is an extremely baffled set of people. Who say, oh, what am I supposed to be doing? What do you mean? And they ask, and they ask Karen Fowler and they ask Ellen yep. and they met with blank stares and encourage them to figure this out for themselves. And people are so used to taking orders and getting with the program, even if it's an odd program, that what they 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 have to think twice. But they, wait a minute, there's no program. We can do whatever we want. Yeah. Because because gender is is a very fluid boundary, and that's kind of the point of the award. And each year, Karen Fowler and Debbie Notkin, who are the Debbie Notkin is the chair of the mother board of the Tiptree Award, and Karen and Pat and Gene Gamal and mm-hmm. Ellen Clayton and Jeff, uh, Jeff Smith, who is the executor of, of Alice Sheldon's estate, Alice Sheldon, who wrote under the name James Tiptree, Karen and Deb explained to the people that they only get the one sentence and we will answer any other questions like, was this published in a year in which it is eligible or if it came out in Bulgaria but not in translation, can we consider it this year? We answer those questions. We will not explain the sentence. Which also means that every year, as Pat Murphy has said, if the winner that is announced does not start a bar fight somewhere, <laughs> it's not our job. Because our job is to make you think outside the envelope, outside the boundaries of what you are used to thinking about. And very frequently, it is not somebody you've ever heard of. It is not somebody you have necessarily read, but it's somebody that we think you need to read if you're going to be on the cutting edge of science fiction. Or to add to that, it's I gather it's not somebody you would necessarily expect if you have preconceived notions because Joe Haldeman won it. Pretty sure, sure. I, 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 well, let me ask you, do the jurors have to help you with the bait good sale? No, the odd thing about the... Uh, no, the jurors do not have to help with the bait good sale. They just read the books. But... From the beginning, the the audience at Wiscon yeah. um, 20 years ago, which is, what year is this now, 2011, 1991, the, the people of Madison, Wisconsin, rose up as one and said, we will support this with bake sales, we will sell cupcakes and cookies. And every year, not only is there a tip tree bake sale at Wiscon, but we will get checks from people in Sweden and Iowa <laughs> and other out-of-the-way places um, who have said, we have had a tip tree bake sale and we have made you $327.53. Where do we send the check? We don't ask for this. People all over the world are spontaneously doing tip tree bake sales. And over 20 years, it's raised, I, I don't know, you know, $15,000 in wow. cookies wow. and cupcakes in, in probably 30 different countries of people who say, we want to support this. This is how we're doing it. We have we have raised one hundred and twenty seven dollars selling cupcakes. We will okay. send it to you. I mean, what, what's interesting is that 
the idea of doing a bake sale is a very uh, non-feminist sort of thing to people who are older. It's a it's a downgraded way of making money. It's a way powerless people, women mostly, make money for their pin very money. good causes, pin money. Hmm. Um, so when this was announced, and this was my recollection is that this was all part of Pat and Karen's announcement that it would be funded by bake sales. There were a lot of older women, and by older women I mean older than me, so women that in 1991 were already in their 50s or whatever, mm -hmm. saying, but this is wrong. This yeah. is not an empowering thing for women to talk about bake sales. And then the next year when they came up with thousands of dollars. <laughs> Well, I've got to say, speaking as an you know sort of an observer to the Tiptree Award, and I've always had you know a, a few things sort of stick in my mind about the Tiptree Award when I think about it. The first thing I think about it is it's supposed to have an edible award, so that sounds like fun. The second thing is that it's about gender, not about feminism, and the third thing is that it puts a great focus on the short list rather than so much on the winner. Um, so that you have that idea of a broader spectrum of work that's being recognized, all of which seem, seem to sort of set it aside from most of the other awards that we look at in the field. Well, the first thing, the first thing you need to know is that the Tiptree Award is, as far as I know, has been for at least 18 of the last 20 years, the only award in the field of science fiction that actually pays the winner money. That's nice. We, yeah, we think that that's important. I mean, it's it's until nice the it, until the until Carl the Carl Brandon, Brandon Society uh, came about about five years ago. But until then, it is nice to win a Hugo. It's a it's a pretty rocket ship. It is nice to win a Nebula. It is a nice it is a nice Lucite Square. It is <laughs> win a World Fantasy Award. It's a good big ugly head. But the two <laughs> is the only one that actually gave the winner money. And the other thing that we decided to do very early on is. Instead of saying there are five potential winners, fly yourself to Madison, put yourself up in a hotel, come to the banquet, see if you win, we let the winner know in advance. And we pay their, their, we pay their way to the ceremony, we pay their hotel, and we give them a prize, and we give them chocolate, and we give them a, a piece of art made specifically for their work. That's so awesome. no one else in science fiction actually honors the author in the way that the tip tree does. Oh. And the other thing that we do is that while the Nebulas and the Hugos and the World Fantasies will will announce the nominees winner to be determined at the banquet, the tip tree announces the winner and the honor list at the same time so that if you're reading the, the press release, you find out who the winner is and you oh. know that the winner is going to be flown to wherever the ceremony is, which most times is Madison and Wisconsin. They get money, they get chocolate, but the honor list people get the attention at the same time. Also, they're not losers. They're they're honored. Yeah. Uh, mm -hmm. so yeah. It's, it's an honor. It's not a contest. Yes. Yeah. And that that I think is what what sets it aside as what will appear to be a feminist award, although it isn't a feminist award because it's a gender based award. But we don't think that anybody should show up expecting to win and find out that they lose yeah. everybody's a winner because the honor list like the newberry honor list for the for for children's literature or the national book award honor list it's announced it, we announce it at the same time so okay. it, is, it is an honor it is an honor to be on the honor list not just an honor to be nominated okay we have 
Now, we, I, I said a, a third guest might appear, and he and, and he's appeared. So uh, say hello to Jeff Ryman. Jeff Tree Winner. Jeff, 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 Jeff Ryman. <laughs> hello, Jeff. Yeah, yeah, here I am. I made it. Um, so, Jeff, what was it like when you won the tip tree? I was wearing a pink bra at the time. <laughs> it's, it's a long story. It is a feminist award, after all. And I had to do something yeah. to make it seem like I was a feminist, so I wore a bra. It, it's not a feminist award. It's a gender-based award. Is it a funny it's, story? I'm even more confused. Yeah. Anyway, no, but it's, uh, it's, uh, it's a wonderful award because uh, it's an award that's a panel award that all these clever people get together and they read lots of books and then they boil it down. With fan-based voting awards, um, you have to have a certain level of book distribution really before you're even in the running, I think. And uh, the, I think panel awards always come up with really interesting results. I would say that, wouldn't I? Uh, but uh, it's, uh, it's just a, a, a wonderful community-based uh, event that you go to and have a lot of fun at it. It's also the only science fiction. It's, it's also the only science fiction award that allows you to wear a pink bra when you accept. <laughs> and a tiara. And it, well, the tiara is extra. The tiara. Okay. I mean, I could wear a pink pink bra at the Philip K. Dick Award or something else, but it wouldn't be the same. No. <laughs> it's considered rude to have a bra and a dick at the same time. Yes. However, wouldn't that itself be eligible for the tip tree? I have stolen your line. It's a good thing this is a podcast. This year's tip tree award, the the author is named Dubrovka. She is from the Ukraine, and the book is Baba Yaga Laid an Egg. This is probably not a book that Borders has or Barnes & Noble has or everybody's going, oh, yeah, fine, yeah, the same thing always wins. That One year, Hiromi Goto won uh, she's a Canadian author who run, won for a book called The Kappa Child, and it was not available in the U.S. at the time. It was only available from a very small press in Canada. So the tip tree is always kind of thinking outside the box to find things you should read if you really wanted to find out what the cutting edge is. Well, let me ask yeah. a, a follow-on question. I think it's relevant for a second, because I'm looking at the list of, of uh, works that have won the tip tree over the last 21 or 20 years. And I guess, do you feel that it helps those books remain available to people? Absolutely. Because it distinguishes them. Um, it's something you can say about them. If, if people are talking about music, but it won the tip tree. And it actually, it, it does actually mean something. Yeah. Uh, even in, I live in England. It means something in England. It's not considered to be an English award. But it does distinguish. And it, it means it puts the book in a certain class of quality, actually. One of the things I think we just heard from uh, uh, from Ellen. Ellen is that it's it also it's not just out of any kind of gender box. It's actually out of an ethnocentric box as well, and that it, there's a real interest in fiction that's coming from different sources or about you know the, your your typical Star Trek science fiction commercial thing where the captain is going to be a representative of the majority culture and the supposedly diverse crew have all culturally melted down to some cultural norm is not the kind of thing that's going to win the tip tree. One of the things that we're, we're very careful on doing, because the motherboard, um, which is, has been fairly stable for the last 15 years or so, we pick the jury every year, and it is a, a five-person jury. And what we try to get on that jury is somebody from the fan base community, somebody from the professional writer community, somebody from a non-Anglo-centric culture, somebody from outside the U.S., somebody from the academic culture, um, somebody who is 
either genetically or by choice male, um, somebody who has who has won the award, who gets a slot on it. Um, and it we try to cover all the bases as possible because otherwise we're picking from the same thing that all the other awards are picking from. And one of the really interesting things about this is we're picking it like this year's winner who is Ukrainian. If, if we didn't have that kind of jury, nobody would have read that. Mm -hmm. So it, where there is some overlap because obviously there's some really great books that are published any, in any given year that every award is looking at, but we're trying to get, as many overlapping Venn diagrams of science fiction and fantasy and speculative fiction as we possibly can so that we don't miss much. And there's a website where if you are, if, if you are anybody anywhere in the world, you can log on to tiptree.org and there's a thing saying, I think this book should be considered by the judges and, and we'll consider it. But that I think is where, is where it differs because we're, we're covering bases that aren't normally covered um, in terms of both ethnicity and geography and gender. Jeff. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I won the award. I then was on the, on the, on the panel judging it. And it was really an extremely interesting process because just as Ellen said, these books kept coming um, out of left field and very, very, very interesting ongoing discussions. And at the end of it, at that year, we, we picked Sarah Hall's The Carulian Army, which had not come out in, in America yet mm. by an English novelist that I had met. I didn't champion, curiously enough, mm. somebody else championed. It's a flinty, post-feminist, really interesting look at war and revolution. Such a, a, a hard-edged, clear-eyed, beautifully written novel. And it was just interesting how very instantly a kind of consensus clicked around that book. There was a lot of different books that we were discussing, but mm -hmm. being on the panel, it's a very interesting process of, uh, we all, I've sat on other award panels where you spend half your time talking about the kind of book that should be part of it. Given the broad remit of this award, there was no discussion like that. There mm -hmm. was just discussion about the quality of the books and a, a, a consensus based on quality and a kind of second sense, a third sense of, of who the community was uh, was what the guide was. It, it's not a subject. You can't define what the tip tree is, except it's an award around a community. Do you think you need to understand the community to uh, present the award? No, I think I think the the community expands as the award expands, mm -hmm. because it started out as as Pat's and Karen's little joke at Wiscon. Uh, a very you know it. Wiscon is, is the, the world's biggest feminist science fiction community. So it started there, but over the last 20 years, it has overlapped just about any category you can think of. And, and the, the interesting thing about the community is that as the award is given to somebody outside the community, the community then expands to uh, accept the award. Eileen? One of the interesting things about the award is how the how the community, the literary community, not just the science fiction community, the world community in some ways, has changed since the start of the award. Mm. When it was started in 1991, there was a lot of resistance to the idea of the award. There was a lot of hostility. People were saying, professional science fiction writers were saying, well, that's, that's not fair. You mean men can't, can't win the award? And people would say, yes, men can win the award if they write mm. about gender issues. Of course they can. And there was sort of a, 
in the people that were complaining the consensus that men didn't write about gender issues. Um, there was hmm. also a feeling that um, it, there was a lot of protest, and I'm not talking about by, by old dinosaurs, I'm talking about people younger than me, um, younger than Pat, um, who were saying, well, some people will just write gender award, write books in order to win the award. And Pat said, yes. <laughs> and he did. And, and for, for many years um, after the award first started, people were saying, well, obviously a man's never going to win this award. And then the, the first man that, that won the award, it was like, oh, well, okay. And then for a couple of years, there was, there was one year where it was, I think, two men, and then there were men, and, and somebody starts saying, well, is a woman ever going to win this award again? And it was like, <laughs> well, we're back to start. Because that's kind of why the award was started, and it is it is about as multi-gendered, multi-sexual orientation, multi-racial award as anything you can think of in in science fiction. If you go back and look at the last twenty years of the Hugo's, the Nebulas, the Locus Awards, the World Fantasy Awards, and the Tip Tree, look at who's won and look at you know what what the the uh, the diversity is, and it's kind of interesting. <laughs> I, well, yeah. I was going to say, well, you, you were going to say something first. Well, all I was going to say was, I mean, I'm looking at the, the list of books that have won, uh, and stories, in fact, short stories that have won the Tip Tree Award over the years. And I guess the question that it makes me wonder is, I see some of my favorite books of the last 20, 20 years on the list. It makes me wonder, has the Tip Tree Award one. I mean, has it met its mission statement? As vague as it may have been, has it achieved all that it set out to, to do and maybe more, do you think? Um, it will never achieve everything it sets out to do because gender, gender exploration and expansion is always going to be fluid. Um, we are now a internationally recognized, prestigious international award, mm. which is certainly not the case 20 years ago when ev everybody else was kind of laughing and going, oh, yeah, yeah, fine, another award. But as because there's that one-sentence criteria, it, it will, there will always be something a year from now or five years from now or ten years from now that's going to push the envelope, and that's what we hope the Tiptree Award is finding. So I don't think, unlike, unlike George Bush, I don't think there's a mission accomplished. Um, if there ever is, it, we will probably, you know, table the award and go, well, fine, thank you very much. All women and men all over the globe are equal. Everything is fine. We've solved all the problems. As of 2011, really no. not so much, so we're not done. Mm. Uh, oh, oh, Jeff? Okay. Who wants it? Eileen wants to go. Okay. I don't think the purpose of the award was to change the world. I think the purpose of the award was to recognize larger parts of the world than traditional science fiction, American science fiction awards. Well, and world domination. Um, pardon? World domination. World domination was also part of it. Yeah. But <laughs> changing the world. Was it was like third on the agenda. Yeah. yeah. Um, but the, the, the thing is that the world didn't change for the award. The, the science fiction field changed whether the award had something to do with it or not. The science fiction field, and I think it did, the science fiction field now acknowledges a much larger part of the universe with respect to gender and race and culture and 
and everything else mm. than it did 20 years ago. Yeah, I think that's true. It's a parade. No, also, it's also a battle that's never never won, and it, uh, it wasn't all that long ago that we suddenly found ourselves with a, a, an all-male Hugo no, uh, nomination list. Sure. Uh, with ultimate irony that, you know, the, the only female nominated, I believe, was the author of the biography of James W. Tidtree, mm -hmm. as if to say, well, feminine mm -hmm. is safely dead mm -hmm. and over, and you get new histories of science fiction, which will actually say, of course, nothing happened in the 70s. We were hanging on for cyberpunk. When in fact the 70s was the era of where, where Joanna Russ, Le Guin, mm. all those people came to the fore. And um, so in a sense, yeah, we're all more aware of the issues, but in a sense, you know, um, you got to keep fighting that battle because it backslides. And and it's especially appropriate, I think, on the, the 20th anniversary of the Chip Tree to note that the uh, Science Fiction Research Association has given the motherboard of the Tip Tree um, an award for service to the science fiction community for for the work that we've done over the last 20 years, yeah. uh, which means that other people in science fiction seem to think that the Tip Tree Award has changed science fiction. Um, I'm guessing for the good, because otherwise they don't give you an award. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I don't. It's it's never over because yeah. until until you can say that there's equality across race and class and gender, without any caveats or asterisks or anything, then there's still work to be done. Sure. I'm interested to note, just as an aside, that the year that the Tiptree Awards started, a woman won the Hugo, the Nebula, and the World Fantasy for best novel. So you know. It's it's oh. interesting interesting to try and assess how things have changed over time. Who was that? Uh, Bujold won the Hugo, Le Guin won the Nebula, and Kushner won the World Fantasy. Okay, so three different women. Yeah. Right. It's also interesting. There was a wonderful piece of research that turned up on Strange Horizon not that long ago in this era of progress, which showed the proportion of stories published mm. by has not changed since the 1930s. Which suggests to me that a lot more women were publishing stories in the 1930s than we had expected. Yes. Under their initials. Under their initials, absolutely. Or John W. Campbell was a girl. Yeah. <laughs> was he? Well, oh, yeah. Oh, that makes a lot of... Now I get it. I think you have your next story, the sequel to the future of science. <laughs> the thing, the thing world. Yeah. Um, just to... I mean, celebrating the trees is a large part of what we're doing here in Madison this weekend, but as long as we have three people in the room here... There's something I want to ask all three of our people. And Jonathan, is, if I'm not mistaken, every one of our three guests has either been in Eclipse or in your years best or in both. Absolutely. Yes, that's and true. And none of them write enough short fiction. So, uh, I mean, Eileen has, what, one book out? In, yeah, but it's short fiction, too. That's all I write. I know. Fiction. But it's not a lot. No. It's distilled. It's like it's it's like Macallan 18. Every 18 years, there's another barrel ready. <laughs> so, what's wrong with Macallan 18? Well, if you could get it at the supermarket, it wouldn't be half as good. Um, I guess you're right. I mean, Ellen's... Quality versus quantity? Jeff? Okay. Uh, Jeff, you have two a new collection. Jeff words. has a new collection coming two out. Word, two words. Joanna Russ. You know, if you change the field, you influence every single science fiction writer going. Mm -hmm. The only novel that I've ever personally fantasized that I wrote that I will one day read type and put my name on and send it to my agent is we who are about to. Um, you're not talking about somebody who wrote a novel a year. And maybe people who are aware of moral, creative, technical issues, maybe getting a synthesis of all that takes a little bit longer, is what I think. Mm -hmm. 
I've written novels. They're not in the science fiction field for most people. They're sort of. There's, yeah. there's sort of. They're fiction about science, and you know, there've been bar fights. I think that the purest form of of speculative fiction is the short story, mm-hmm. um, and and I think that the one of the interesting things about the Tiptree Award over the years is we haven't distinguished between novel and short yeah, story. That some years it's a novel, some years it's a short story, some years it's a novel and a short story, um, and and but there isn't a a long form, short form. We don't divide into categories. We just it it's just the award for the the work. Um, and that may be something that the rest of the field needs to think about. Oh, so, Jonathan, you were going to say something. No, I wasn't. I wasn't, actually. Now you are. I, I, now I am, okay. So all three of you have uh, well, either written stories or are potentially writing stories for me and everything else, which is a, a, a great privilege. Um, one thing that occurred to me while you were talking, actually, is you, Alan, I think, said that the short story is the best form for science fiction, but isn't it the novella, really? I, I personally think it's whatever the writer writes best mm-hmm. is their form. And some people write novels far better than they write short stories. I would like to be able to write a novel better than my short stories. But at the moment, you know, the, the novel yeah. form, yeah. I look at what I'm doing in it, and I say, well, that's not done yet. It takes me longer. I'm a very short form writer. Yeah. Twitter is my ideal length. Yeah. <laughs> Joanna Russ wrote When It Changed, and in print, it's three pages. And I have read very, very little in any genre across the board in the last 30 years that is better than that three-page short story. So, no. Yeah, yeah. Jeff? It's much easier to make a mistake in a novel. I mean, they're longer, and you have to yeah. keep on making up the world and making up the world and mm. making up the world. And um, maybe the I mean, shorter form is really good for saying things are unknowable, and yeah. the future is unknowable, and people are unknowable. And you can maybe get that one little moment of heartbreak at the end when it changed, when this wonderful world that has to change is going to go and that wonderful last line, you know, while away for a while, it's unknowable. The future is going to be unknowable after that. And that's what short stories do well. And that's probably science fiction at its best. When we try and show, do the whole dark thing uh, and show the spectacle, that's when you begin to do silly things like copy the past onto the future, copy your own biography onto the future. That's when you start perhaps scraping the barrel a little bit. I notice this when I'm writing novels. With the short form, it's easier to prune down and throw out anything that isn't about the change, isn't about that future that you're writing about. And maybe that's why short form in science fiction uh, is, is so perfect. Really, to, to just what Ellen said, it, uh, when it changed is, is my favorite short story. I think it has the best title for any short story in any genre. And I teach it to my mainstream students, and they get it. It's one of the wonderful things about that story is it depends on good science. She doesn't have to info dump. You couldn't have the time for a while away to develop if it wasn't for the immensity of space and time dilation. It takes 600 years for the men to show up, and a whole culture can develop in that time. And just effortlessly, it's the good science combining with the wonderful speculation, combining with the wonderful writing, combining with the wonderful characters and the heartfelt take. 
And the, you know, maybe it was a feminist and story when it came out. She does it in three pages. And it's the, you know, it's the technical expertise that, that, that means that you don't write a lot if you're getting it that right technically. Um, it, it, it's, it's, uh, I've been knocked out what I was going to say. That's what I was mm -hmm. <laughs> I like novels. Um, I think they're wonderful things. I've, but I think that the science fiction as a genre starts with Hugo Gernsback and, and the magazines and the stories and goes through for, for two decades with very few novels and a lot and lot and lot and lot and lot of short stories that are eventually collected into, into paperback originals. And, sure. and they're, they're are wonderful novels, but if you can distill all of that down into 2,000 words or 10,000 words and get it into a short story, I, that's the art I admire. Yeah. Which, which brings okay, Jonathan. I was going to say, I should clarify, I actually said novella, not novel. Well, yeah, novella. That, yeah. That's but, still 17,000 words. Well, yeah. and anyway, well, only because I've, I've heard that said for science fiction. Um, Very briefly, same applies. Maybe sure. with another plot, it gives you enough space um, to do the thing, which is you have to tell the story, imply the story of the society, and then come up with a story of an individual life that is totally unique to that individual and believable that individual mm -hmm. and meaningfully intersects with the story mm -hmm. of a whole society. Maybe the novella form does give you enough time to lay the foundations of real change. I don't see how being a novella would improve when it changed. Perhaps a little bit more explanation of why they've pinned old earth names on the on the wildlife. A bit more description of the wildlife to show you where you were on another world. Or who knows, maybe they took wolves with them because you need predators to set up a... a a good ecosystem. She doesn't bother doing that. She might have been able to do it in a novella form. Maybe it would be better. Maybe it wouldn't. We don't know. I've written novellas, yeah. and yeah. I know that they give me a chance to sketch in a little bit more of the world. And there, there's an advantage there, but I don't really feel with a novella that I'm writing a novel. I just feel that I'm writing a shorter piece of fiction that's found mm -hmm. its natural. And I would say, oh, just, uh, I'm going to hand this to Eileen in a minute, but uh, Souls uh, is, is a novella-length story by, by Joanna Russ, which is exactly, I think, the appropriate length for that story as well. She needs to develop a fuller culture, a more historical culture, and, and is making a different point. So I think Eileen's earlier point that the story determines the length is, is probably a very valid one. Well, I, I want to say that I think the novella being the best form is, is positioning it against the novel rather than against the short story. Yes. The reason one would say that, I think, is and what and the reason that one might not say that about the short story, might not put the short story right in there, is because, as Jeff said, you don't explain a lot in the short story. It is there. It's very immediate. It's there in the moment. You can suggest an immense amount in the short story, but you don't have room to say it. In the novella, you have more room to back up what you're saying by establishing things, and yet you don't get into the tendentious um, as you told George, kind of um, texts that a novel often gets into in science fiction. The problem with science fiction is really that it wants to explain all the science in it. It tries, and you can kind of fight it back. You kind of cross things out after you've written it, explaining all the thinking you've gone through, the writer, to create the story. But basically, the reader shouldn't care and doesn't care. And the reader, I think, would like it better if the explanations of the background 
were shorter and the novel the novella forces that whereas the novel lets you put in as many words as you actually want and speaking as a reader both of science fiction and historical mm -hmm. fiction of mainstream fiction sometimes the reader is really grateful when you leave some stuff out that you've researched because mm -hmm. oh, yeah. we oh, yeah. don't want to read every damn note card that you have <laughs> I was thinking. I think comparing the novella to to the novel and to the short story, you kind of have to throw in the haiku, <laughs> and and you and you look at somebody like Basho who can write haikus that encompass a novel in seventeen syllables, and you think, really, what would you add to that? Mm -hmm. um, and I think good science fiction short stories, like when it changed, are that kind of art form. Jeff. Ernest Hemingway's short story, for sale, baby shoes, never used. Exactly. That's yeah. the entire story. Yeah, six-word short story. Right. And, I did uh, a science fiction six-word short story six -word for Wired, yes. Okay. And I did two of them, actually, but only one of them was any good. Mm -hmm. um, it goes, computer, did we bring batteries? Computer? <laughs> <laughs> Let me ask you this because it struck me when we were talking when you talk about uh, Joe and Trina Russell's story. Do you think that we are using the science fiction short story as cleverly as we could these days when you look back at some of the short stories we've been given in the past? Hmm. Define we. <laughs> no, no, I won't. Science, I mean, the, the field as we see it out there today, I guess. I don't know. I think one of the things I want to say about that is, is that one of the reasons that it's interesting if you look at the British tradition, which Jeff comes out of, and then and, and the American, the American shorts, the American science fiction tradition is a short story tradition. That was the only venue mm. available. Uh, in, in Britain, you did have Wells, you had Stapledon, you had uh, uh, God knows, uh, S. Fowler Wright, and so forth and so on. Uh, so to some extent, I suspect that a lot of the compression and the instant world building, the sort of thing that Heinlein brought into science fiction, may have come about by the simple fact that you only had a short story, maybe a series of linked short stories, as, as Asimov did, but you really didn't have an opportunity to expand your world into a novel uh, back in the 30s and 40s. I also think that with electronic publishing and, and web publishing and small press publishing, that we're seeing a lot more experimental short stories um, because they because they can be, be distributed for not a whole huge outlay of capital, mm -hmm. and a novel is a, is a, is a different ballgame. You know, if you're going to no matter how you distribute a novel, it's going to be a bunch of work. A short story there there are more venues for short stories, not necessarily paying. Mm. But there are more venues for short stories now than I think that there were 20 years ago. Now, if you go back to the 30s. It, it was a golden age for short stories. Well, you um, could, you but they were the also, same amount of money now for a short story by the word as you could in the 30s. Yeah, no, they're right. paying, it used to be a lucrative market. Yeah, they're yeah. paying a penny a word, which for a three thousand dollars short for three thousand word short story is thirty bucks. Yeah, you're making that online, but but you're also getting there are probably you know four or five times the amount of of media. That are available for short stories. I mean, there are there are Twitter short stories. There are mm -hmm. there are blogging short stories. There are non-traditional publishing short stories. There are fewer novels, I think. But uh, Jeff, 
Yeah. I mean, I, and I think one, one of the things I'm aware of is, uh, first off, that you can't find a print magazine now unless you subscribe to it. I mean, where are you going to buy it? Yeah. yeah. You, you know, a really huge borders for as long as they continue to exist might have them. But mm. I, where my mom is in Southern California, I can't find a printing now. So I'm subscribing to, you know, Asimov's on Kindle. And I understand FNSF is going to be on Kindle. And I'm subscribing to them on Kindle. And Tor.com. We, and Tor.com. But sure. The online market, every time I go to a convention or talk to somebody, there's another online market for short stories. And it has generated a whole group of young writers worldwide. I know probably not enough about. It's a whole new wave of science fiction. And they, they've seen their stuff in print, and it's creating discussion around their short stories. I think we're in a kind of golden age. The Brits are very self-consciously in a golden age. Yeah. I mean, we just keep... It's, it's, you know, and we do seem to have an awful lot of really fine writers right now with us. Mm -hmm. Stephen Baxter, uh, Ken McLeod, Charlie Strauss, China Mievel. Uh, we've got Pat Cadding came across to live with us. We just seem to have a welter of really good science fiction writing going on. So for me, I'm with all these and the, the, the Kelly Link uh, post-genre stuff happening and all of that. I have a sense that we're in a kind of golden age for it. I think 30 years from now we might be looking back at the impact of the new technology, the new communication coming in as this thing which just created this amazing uh, upswell of, of great science fiction and science fiction related, you know, forms of science fiction that's growing out of itself. Mm -hmm. Oh, Eileen. I think the, the cost of entry into putting on a magazine is much mm -hmm. lower on the web. That's sure. what's led to this huge bloom of, mm -hmm. of very different writing. It's, it's a new kind of writing on the web it, because younger editors can come in, people who are less interested in some of the more traditional short story forms mm -hmm. and are going for shorter forms mm -hmm. or different forms or different subject matter, things that would not be, would be basically done for love um, if they were being printed in, in small mm. numbers of yeah. copies because you couldn't distribute it, can be distributed easily on the web and find its audience in a way that that has not been possible for science fiction in the United States for 50 or 60 years. Well, and there are also chapbooks being distributed in, in smaller numbers, mm. but in, you know, in the right places that are getting read and are getting passed around in, in a way that isn't isn't a model that that I think you know possibly goes back to the 20s where you know you are you are getting a, a literate society who are writing things for themselves and they're and some of the some of the good stuff is filtering out and if you look at the Nebula ballot and the Hugo ballot this year it is not the 800 pound gorilla and it's not same old same old. But one of the questions, oh Jeff, the other thing we've got to always factor in is the bricks. And science fiction traditionally is strongest in societies that feel that there's something for them looking ahead into the future. And it's there's a poll recently um, that the second most optimistic nation in the world is now Nigeria. And you're getting um, mm -hmm. stuff like uh, the Lagos 2060 Collective. You've got www.afrocyberpunk.com. You're getting this. And, and some of the Nigerian, you, you don't want to call it science fiction, but very interesting fiction. It's sort of... Mm. Merging with the mainstream, there's, there's a story, and I can't pronounce the author's name, called Road Rage, and it's about a guy in his talking car. It's a Nigerian short story. Yeah. And in order for his car to understand, the Nigerian driver is coming up with equations that describe human driving behavior. And it's, it's a totally original story, 
that's coming out of these burgeoning new societies. What did you say? Which I think, oh, it's a friend of mine does this thing called, um, she puts together anthologies of new fiction coming out of country by country. Oh, okay. And um, what what I think is also happening there is is the, the, the impact of the more mobile technologies. Uh, I, I think what we're going to be looking at is finally those countries like Cambodia or Africa where it's been very, very difficult to get a kind of publishing industry going. With the mobile phone and Kindle apps for phones, I think we're finally beginning to see a model emerging where all this, I, mean, I keep hearing about science fiction from India and mm. science fiction from Brazil. Mm. I'm just not getting my hands on it. But it's out there, and it may be something that, you know, well, even the people doing the tree are finding it difficult to get their hands on. That's the next thing that's going to come. We're going to get our hands on it. And it's going to be mm. in translation. There's a new science fiction translation award mm. just being pulled together, mm. translation to English from those cultures. We're about to see a whole explosion coming from there, too. Well, that's one of the reasons that for at least the, la at least the last half of its existence, the Tip Tree Award has had somebody outside the U.S. Yeah. and outside mm. an Anglo-centric mm -hmm. culture going, okay, what are you seeing that we would not have heard about? Mm -hmm. um, and in some cases, we have had a brilliant work that isn't available in translation yet. Um, and and the, one of the judges has said, this is wonderful, but the other four judges can't read it. Um, and I'm hoping mm -hmm. that in the next five years, 10 years, um, as the tip tree continues, that, that, that that's going to change because obviously it isn't just the U.S. and Britain. Um, it's stuff happening all, all over the world, and it's not all happening in English. Mm -hmm. and, and China is huge. The Chinese market for science fiction is huge. Mm -hmm. It's not translated, but it, but it's a mammoth market. Mm -hmm. U.S. science fiction is sometimes translated into Chinese, and so a large market doesn't pay terribly well because the currency differential, etc. But there are a lot of readers of science fiction in China, millions of them. Well, and the number of Japanese science fiction fans that are at WISCON right now. Oh, yeah. I mean, science fiction has been big in Japan for a long, long time. Mm. As long as we're talking about countries, I might as well mention that the, I think two of the most interesting novels I read this year, and Jonathan, you and I have talked about them, are from Finland. Yes, very much. Yes. I know Ryan Yemi and, uh, and Johanna Senesawa. Yeah, but Johanna won the tip tree. And she won the tip tree. Five, for, six years ago. Yeah, for, for trolls. For a troll. Uh, troll. Yeah. yeah. Uh, a little love story. Uh, Jonathan, you, are you into some time pressure tonight? Because I, I am a little bit sort of, this has actually been very fascinating, so I'm just stretching and trying to see how fast I can drive later on when I have to, so don't worry about it too much. I will say, I was, when, when you were yes. talking, one thing that crossed my mind based on my reading, and I read a lot of short stories, is I've had this feeling that in at least the traditional venues that we encounter um, Western science fiction, and by that I mean the standard magazines, there has been a tendency towards bloat in the short fiction we're seeing. You know, there is a lack of efficiency in a lot of it, where it needs to be a lot tighter than it is, I think. And I think that's something that we've lost a little bit in the last 10 years. I assume you're talking about the short stories that don't make it into the year's best science fiction. <laughs> Even some of the ones that do could be just a bit tighter, I have to tell you. Uh, well, I mean, Eileen, Eileen writes some of the tightest short stories I've ever written sure. by a So how do you get the, distilled to that level? I'm an advertising writer. <laughs> <laughs> no, my form, I'm a short form writer, just, uh, just to begin with. So, and, I, and I've trained, you know, I've mm. been, I was in advertising for 40 years, and I trained... To, to cut out all the extra words, not, not the not the bloat, 
but just do I need this word? Yes, it means something, but does it mean enough to be valuable enough to be in this space? Because generally, you wrote to a, to a space. Yes. Uh, headlines are only so long. Um, you only have three three right. blocks of copy. And the longer you went on, the more likely you were to lose the person before you got to the cell copy, which was at the end. Yeah. So I, I'm accustomed to looking at my work and cutting out the stuff that's extra. And then I realized, wait a minute, this is only 100 words long. How did I get done? <laughs> and, and if there's a downside to... to um, web-based fiction, I, I think that that's yeah, it, it could be, yeah. is that in a, in a traditional magazine, if you've got four pages, there's only so much type you can fit mm -hmm. into four pages, but in a web-based thing, you, you don't have those constraints. Mm -hmm. So I, I don't know, I mean, I've published both on the web and, and in print, and I don't know if, if there is, but, you know, I, I know that there's stuff that we've said, well, you know, nobody's going to take this because it's it's hugely long. We say, well, but online, mm. you're just scrolling long, and it doesn't matter because it's not more paper, it's not more yeah. trees. And that is going to be a model that I think that going into the future is going to be something that's going to be a factor. Jeff? In the hands of, of, of all of us, I think, when we all switched over to word processing, um, what tends to happen, uh, what used to happen is you'd have to reach out. And if you got bored retyping it, you could bet your bottom dollar that we did would get bored reading it. <laughs> it's, it's just too easy to keep adding. Yeah. And I think bloat is a, a legacy of we're still really learning to, we think we've totally adjusted to our mind. Right. I think part of the bloat is, is we've yet to go through a stage where it's so exhausting to come up with a final draft that we start throwing stuff out because we just want to get to the end ourselves. Um, I, I think that... You know, those those days are going to come to an end too. Uh, yeah. You know, partly because um, it, I don't believe do you get paid per word. Yes, you do. Yeah. As long as you get paid per word, there is going to be an incentive towards bloat, isn't there? A little bit. Uh, yeah, it doesn't well, incentivize no. me. Well, no. I've, got, I've got to say, I mean, I wonder if there is, though, Jeff, because honestly, it's not like you're getting paid by most people a lot of cents per word. You know, and so adding an extra couple of hundred words is, isn't going, or even a thousand words isn't going to add a great deal to what you get paid unless you're at a top market that's paying 20 cents a word. It's much more work to cut them out than to leave them in once uh, a week. But you, you know, Jonathan, the same question came up when word processors began to, sure. word processors began to replace computers. People yeah. just write and write and write and write. And they don't and, run out of paper. And you don't run out of paper, and, 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 and you don't have to pay postage when you mail it into the publisher. And, and now we're simply saying, that the, the the technological advance that once was represented by word processing is now possibly represented by online publishing. Yeah, I mean, one of the a related uh, cause of this may be that, that there's much less editorial um, advising being done. Mm. That is, for most of the online publications, there's even less than is done in in paper publications. And in paper publications, it varies considerably. Some editors have the time to take time with their writers. Others may have the inclination, but no time, because the pressure is really great to produce the work and to get on with something else that makes money. And part of this has to do with there not being as much money in publishing, especially short fiction. Basically, you're getting a you're basically getting a copy edit. I mean, mm. you're not. Any structural yeah. advice at all, right. and that's even true with novels. Uh, you know, these days, I don't know what it's like in America, but basically, your editor is now, you know, your agent, and it's the agent that gives you the structural 
quality advice because the, the agent, first off, the editors have less, less power in publishing houses, at least in Britain. Mm. So your agent is the person who will start selling you the endings wrong. That you know, This has to be 50,000 words shorter. Um, your, your agent is the person who does all that. My experience of selling stories to magazines these days is that the editorial advice, it's either, uh, sorry, there's not enough science fiction in this, we're not buying it. Or it's you've left out this word and that word and that word and can I suggest you know and it's it it is it, it you're right there isn't that level of advice where someone would say I've cut this back I suggest you have this following cuts what do you think mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Jeff do do you think having an agent default to the role of editor is I mean is a good thing it it sounds to me that to some degree they would have to have almost other interests than solely the text at heart, if you know what I mean. I mean, you'd like to think ideally that an editor at a publishing house, their goal is to get the pure form of the text, but to some degree, an agent's got to be thinking about how they're going to sell the book. Yeah, that's that's exactly why they're doing it. And it's a reflection in Britain, I don't have a situation here, of the the continued disempowerment of the editors to the point where the power isn't even with the marketing power, much with the marketing department and the publishers. It's, It's kind of with the big wholesalers who call shots on things like covers and, and mm. uh, all of that. And at that point, the, the editor is desperately trying to make a case for the book. What you're talking about, you know, time schedule, staff levels, there isn't really the time to read it. So, yeah, your agent takes over that job. And, I, you know, you do get friends of mine who, you know, the, the agent had an editor that they worked with and they loved working with that editor. And then that editor left and they get an appropriate editor and suddenly they're thinking of having to change agent. Mm-hmm. But I also think that's true that, you know, every week in Publishers Weekly, you, you see somebody who was an editor with a house and is now mm. to, to form their own agency. Mm-hmm. So you've got a lot of people who were editors who are now agents who are functioning as editor slash agent because they've got experience as editors. And they'd like to edit and they and they and they would like to be agents because you get fifteen percent. Oh yeah, more, you get more money, you can still yeah. edit. But sure. but I think I think that the the job description is is becoming fluid and sort of a permeable membrane. Yeah. The other the other interesting thing, and, and Jonathan, we talked several weeks ago about Amanda Hawking. Yes. A self-published uh, writer who's made millions of dollars and now has a three-book contract. And one of the things that was interesting is that she decided she needed an editor at some point. And now you have a phenomenon, I guess they've always been there, but professional freelance editors, some of whom had significant jobs at publishing houses, essentially hiring themselves out uh, as consultants to, to writers who otherwise would simply be self-published writers. But these writers must have money in order to pay the consultant. And that's for often for writers, especially at the beginning of the career, they have no money. True. And if they have money, it's because they're out working instead of writing to make that money. Mm. So these professional editors who are who are hiring out are only hiring themselves out to either people who have day jobs and, and are, are hobbyist writers or are writing mm. their spare time but can pay for an editor, or they're they're hiring themselves out to successful writers who certainly benefit just as much as anyone else from having an editor. Yeah, um, I guess. Well, I, I, I suppose that in some ways that, that harks back to the day of the famous writer's school and the famous artist school. You know, if you can draw this bunny, you can edit Astounding. Uh, <laughs> and, and yet there, there's something appealingly free market about that whole thing uh, in a way, because some of these 
some of these editors, in the case of Amanda Hawking, she'd made a lot of money and she realized that her work needed a lot of tightening up and a lot of correcting that she couldn't get from her non-professional friends. Uh, so it's, it's, it's almost, there's, there's a famous book uh, 30 years ago called Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance yeah. by Robert Piercy, where he talks about if you just eliminated grades and tuition from universities, eventually everybody would drift away because they're not getting credentials, they're not getting, but eventually some people would realize, I need that. And what I see happening with some of the self-publishing, not a lot of it, is some writers beginning to realize, I need editors, I need structure, I need, it, I need guidance. In fact, it's a game that everybody's getting into. You suddenly, I don't know if you've got it happening here, but a lot of publishers are suddenly running the equivalent of MFA courses. Mm. Yeah. They're, they're basically, as a lucrative sideline, running the equivalent of clarion workshops to teach um, people creative writing. Um, very suddenly, a lot of my creative writing teacher colleagues are also setting themselves up, or people who are writers who haven't been able to get into MFA programs to teach are setting themselves up as mentors um, and, and hiring themselves out as mentors to up-and-coming writers. Uh, and that's, that kind of development is, is, is all part and parcel, ultimately, I think, of what's happening to publishing as a result of the technology, is there needs to be gateway mechanisms which right. said somebody yeah. else says this good, and there needs to be somebody who, uh, at some stage, takes you in hand and says, I'm terribly sorry, I know you love the ending, but it's, we don't know why the baby dies. <laughs> and if there's real reason for the baby to die, okay. If not, you're just trying to make us cry, and it doesn't work. And you need that kind of advice at some point, and it seems you're getting it uh, in multiple directions at once, in the form of education, in the form of mentoring, in the form of proper editing. And I, it, just now I begin to think that it must be something to do with the, the overall meltdown in the industry you're getting uh, in, in terms of the traditional roles. I'm, I, while you're saying that, I'm thinking one of the things that drives the whole industry is money. Mm -hmm. And that's what's yeah. driving people taking MFA courses. It's yeah. what's driving laying off the editors. It's what's driving editors going into, into um, agenting. But for the writer... Money may or may not be a consideration. The writer may be working for money, or the writer may be working for art, or the writer may be seeking some middle ground between the two. Or write for food. <laughs> well, um, for the most part, writers don't write for food because they'd be doing something else. I mean, I, really, I was in advertising. I can make money in advertising. I cannot make money in, in any meaningful sense writing short stories. Um, mm. It's always a gamble. If you're in writing advertising, it's not a gamble. It's not like you write an ad and maybe somebody will buy it. You write an ad and you're paid for being there that moment. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. in, in um, writing fiction, you may write something and you may sell it. You may not sell it right away. It may be brilliant. Mm -hmm. You sell it to 19 different publishers and eventually somebody publishes it and it wins a major prize. But the, the, the big difference between the act and the financial reward for the writer not necessarily for any of these other people. So the writer has some other motivation, which may be the aesthetic, as, as you were saying, mm -hmm. the writer feels that their work could be better and they want it to be better, even though they're making plenty of money. Mm -hmm. But they, they've developed um, a need for writing better that it has no money benefit to them. That's why we're so easily exploited. I mean, you would probably write our short stories and let people have them for free if that was the only venue. You're, talk, you're talking to an editor on this podcast. 
I don't believe that. I have no desire to take your work for free. I like to pay you. If, if, if I couldn't get paid for my stories, I probably would write even fewer of them, but I would still write them, and I'd still want people to read them. And I think, I think we are kind of exploitable uh, often because ultimately in the end you don't write a short story for money. In the end you write it because it seems such a bloody good story. You can't stop yourself writing it. Mm -hmm. I, I have a, a, a small suspicion about people who do only write for money. Mm. Um, and and I'm sure there are friends of mine out here who are now listening to this who are going <laughs> not my Christmas party. But it's the the ones of us who would write it and give it away if 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 you could share it with somebody just for the the sake of writing it and and getting it out there. And it's I think a different mindset than the people who are who will say sure I'll write your story short story what are you paying. Um, and and I think all of us who do this for a living have a little bit of, of, of both of those things in our lives. Every once in a while you get somebody who say, if you will write a story about cats on Ferris wheels, hmm. I will give you a thousand bucks. And you're going, sure, don't really care. But, okay. you know, really, yeah. a thousand bucks, I'll take it. Because that means uh, you can write the story that you really want to write and get paid 30 bucks and still okay. be able to eat. That, that, that's very much the point I wanted to make. It's a point that was made to me by Harlan Ellison. However, controversial he may be in other areas, he knows about writing short stories. Mm -hmm. And he made a very clear distinction and a very important distinction between writing for money and expecting to get paid something for what you write. Mm -hmm. yes. Writing for money is trying to determine a market and think, okay, people want you know, uh, uh, vampire chickadees this year, uh, and I'll, I'll do that. And But on the other hand, if you write a story and you believe in that story, you don't give it away because you want to value it enough. It may be $30, as, as you say, Ellen, and it may be $1,000. But valuing your work enough to want to be paid something for it is not the same thing as writing to a monetary. No, no, well, and, and the thing is, you may, write, you may write it for $30 the first time and put your heart into it, and then it gets picked up for a year's best or something, mm -hmm. and they well, yeah. pay you 100 bucks. And then it gets picked up for something else, and you get paid 200 bucks. So by the time you're done, if it's really good quality, you've reached a larger audience, and and you've gotten paid a reasonable amount, and you haven't written about vampire chickadees. Right. Well, it doesn't actually have that much to do with it being a good quality. Like you, you make it sound like all good quality stories will rise to the top financially, and that's really not true. No. And you can tell by reading um, the best of the year anthologies, some of those stories are great, some of them are not. Mm. You know, being a great story won't make it rise, and being a mediocre story will not keep it from rising. There are other forces at work. True, sure. Um, but one thing is the, the, um, the motivation for writing, and once you cross off finances, as for short stories anyway, as a real motivation, um, you have to you think, well, why am I writing? And uh, I think that for the most part, I write to break something, um, hopefully it's what the editor has asked me to write. Mm. And, you know, it's the cats and parasols. I think, yeah, I could do that. Um, one of my, but, but it won't have a cat in it, and it won't really be a Ferris. <laughs> and it'll be Ferris Bueller. <laughs> oh, it's one of those. Yeah. and Ferris Bueller, <laughs> and it's Slash. Yeah, I mean, but but I I like to do that, and I don't I don't necessarily do it deliberately. But once I've done it, I'm just so happy. 
you know, and, and I think, okay, I've done this. Nobody will buy it now. The editor won't buy it that wanted it, but <laughs> for some reason they do. So, but to me that, that breaking things and changing things so they're not what I thought they were when I started is one of the reasons that I write. Not the money. Mm. But, but the money helps. Money helps. Well, well, could I suggest something else? I mean, there's a re reason why I think the money thing is actually important, and it's something you haven't quite connected, and that is generally where there is the money connects to potential readers, and surely that's one of the real reasons for writing, to get read. And if someone's going to pay you more money, generally, though not always, it connects to a greater potential reading audience, and that's that's a huge thing. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So play is better than uh, like your local fancy. Yeah. There, there are certainly people that don't think that. There are people that that are happy to be in small press publications, and it's not because um, they can't get into the big ones. It's because they have a commitment to small press. Sure. And mm -hmm. yeah. I know a lot of people like that. I personally I've published my story collection was published by a small press and I didn't take it anywhere else. It was the small press's idea to do it. It was not my idea. Mm -hmm. yeah. I told them, oh, I don't think I've got enough stories or, oh, I'm too busy. I can't do that now. And they just kept after me and kept after me. And that's something that a big publisher won't do. It's something that a small press publisher does for, for just the same kinds of weird reasons that people write stories. There are people who, who edit and, and publish sure. books. There are people who still believe in what they're publishing. <laughs> On the other hand, I would really like to be in the New Yorker. Mm -hmm. I would also really like to be in Mad Magazine for completely different reasons, and I'd like to be on Jeopardy. Um, yeah, it's it, there are there are things that you grow up thinking this is a goal, and and it's it's not. It doesn't. It, it, it at some point it doesn't really become the money. It's like I've made it into this thing that when I was a kid was the ultimate thing. Mm. And I'm not sure if I had to pick between the New Yorker and Mad Magazine. Mm. Really, don't tempt me with that one. <laughs> well, well, since we all work with small presses, all, all four of us in one way or another, I mean, Jeff, your collection Paradise Tales is coming out from a small press and they're going to reprint uh, you know, Was, I think it is, and they've just reprinted The Child Garden through Small Beer, who are a small press. Um, Ellen, your collection, uh, Portable Childhoods, came out through a small press. Same for, for you, Eileen, with Stable Strategies. And Gary, your books of, uh, of you know, criticism review have generally come out from small presses. Do you think the field appreciates small presses enough? Um, my, well, my sense is that the people... This is a really wise answer. The people who appreciate small presses appreciate small presses. Okay. Which means that in addition of 2,000 copies, maybe the market for that, and a small press will know how to find those 2,000 people and get to them, and they will really be appreciative of, of, of what they've got. Uh, and to, to that extent, I think, yeah, the field, does the broader field, does the, uh, does the Michael Crichton readership check to see what Tachyon or Subterranean is publishing next month? Probably not. They're probably waiting to have somebody tell them what they're reading. More than 10 years ago, less than 20 years from now. Mm. Well, okay. I think I think that 10 years ago, I mean, I, I came into this field like 15 years ago, and there were a couple of big science fiction houses, and now there are a dozen or more small science fiction houses. 
Um, and I think that in 20 years, the the disparity between small press and large press is probably going to be lessened. And some of that is going to have to do with electronic publishing. Um, but it's, you know, instead of there being one 800-pound gorilla now, there are five 200-pound gorillas. Um, and, and I think that that is changing things because I think that some of the 800-pound gorillas um, in publishing that 15 years ago were, were you know, us, us or nothing um, are finding that they are getting competition from small presses that don't pay as much and – but people are – I mean, again, you mm-hmm. look at the Nebula ballot, you look at the Hugo ballot the last two or three years, and then you go back 10 years and it is night and day mm-hmm. because – Right now, you're getting stuff from uh, from places that didn't exist ten years ago, or something nobody had ever heard of ten years ago. And I think that that's going to continue. Yeah, I mean, the big change the big change has been where the readership is, and I think the reason the reason that you're you're talking about is is that the readership, uh, which does overlap heavily in the case of the Nebula with the people who write this mm-hmm. stuff, but it means that people have to be reading this uh, and have to be getting hold of it. I think. That's it. A huge difference. But I mean, look at, at uh, Rachel Swirsky won. Yeah. Rachel Swirsky won that won the Nebula two weeks ago for a, a, a story that I think was published in Subterranean. Yeah. Um, mm. And that's that's a, a small press. It's a prestigious small press, but it's still a small press. And mm. and that's a a novella Nebula winner. And that wouldn't have happened ten years ago. Well, she did make it available on the web, and Sequa makes those stories available. Right. So. It's yeah. easier to find the stories and read them now for the purpose of awards. But it's still, if, if, if somebody wants to go back and look at, at 20 years of the major awards and look mm-hmm. at what publishers are represented, the percentages, I think, will, the, the graph will be an interesting curve. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think if we look at Nightshade and Tachyon and PS and Subterranean showing up on awards ballots. And I Aqueduct. Think, and, and Aqueduct. Uh, showing up on awards ballots, they, I think you're right. They probably would not have shown up on uh, 30, 20 or 30 or 40 years ago. But Jeff? Well, I mean, the experience with being published with a small press or being reasonably far down as a mid-list author in, in a, a supposedly big publishing company, the experience isn't that different. I mean, basically, yeah, Kirkus and, and, and Publishers Weekly will review it and it's going to learn bookshops because it's their job and because it's, they will know it's there. Excuse me. Uh, fans will know And I think I think also that there's there's a difference between having a two thousand copy print run and selling it out and having a ten thousand copy print run and getting remaindered. Um, you know, you're it's just different. Um, if we're gonna wind up, I need to make a plug for the chip tree. Um, if you have something that you think should be considered by this year's jury, www.tiptree.org, there is a thing there that says recommend, and you can recommend any title from any publisher anywhere in the world, and the Tiptree jury will consider it. Uh, and Jonathan, I know you have to run. Jeff has to run. Ellen is supposed to be bartending. I'm supposed to be now. bartending for an hour and a half. Right, ago, exactly. So. And so, so uh, we for, all have for for the Tiptree anniversary party. For the Tiptree anniversary party, which is going on right now, so we're all heading over there. And at that point, I returned to find out that everybody had run away. We'd like to thank Jeff Ryman, Eileen Gunn, and Ellen Clagis for joining us on the podcast. It was a great chance to talk about the Tiptree Awards, about short fiction, and about our field. We hope that you'll enjoy uh, that you'll meet that you'll enjoy the podcast, and that you'll join Gary and I next week.